Hello, and welcome to Mindful You at Naropa, a podcast presented by Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. I'm your host, David Devine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you. Joining the best of Eastern and Western educational traditions, Naropa is the birthplace of the modern mindfulness movement. Today, we welcome Janine Canty of Naropa University, a full-time professor and chair of the Environmental Studies Department, which includes the MA in Resilient Leadership Program and the BA in Environmental Studies. She is also the editor and contributor to the book, Ecological and Social Healing, Multicultural Woman's Voice. So thank you for uh, joining us today, Janine. It's really good to have you. Thanks, David. Yeah, and today we're going to be talking about, uh, what was your topic? Oppressions of people and oppressions of the earth go hand in hand. We are. Wow, it's yeah. pretty big. It's, it's pretty heavy. So um, can you just give us a brief uh, who you are, and then we can just jump right into it. Uh, sure, and thanks for uh, coming here this morning. It's yeah. great to be in your presence. Yeah, so as you said, I'm a professor here at Naropa. I just started my 11th year, which feels like, wow, awesome. I've been here for a while. Mm-hmm. And I uh, teach in both the Environmental Studies um, BA and the MA in Resilient Leadership. The courses that I teach, a lot of them have to do with the connection between ecological issues and social justice issues. So I teach eco-psychology, deep ecology, Uh, Earth Justice, uh, with a subtitle, Patterns of Oppression and Healing. Also, a Wilderness Solo Courses, Indigenous Environmental Issues. And right now, I'm also teaching a um, community-based learning and action course for the um, undergraduates, which is actually really fun. Cool. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of classes. uh, It is. Actually, it is. Um, (laughs) But I like to really... um, do a lot about how we change our worldviews. Yeah. Um, I'm originally, I was actually, I was born in the Bronx in mm-hmm. uh, New York City, and I grew up mostly in uh, on the East Coast, New Jersey, Connecticut. Uh, I went to my undergrad at Colgate University, and I did a BA in international relations. And then I uh, did a teacher education two-year program at Prescott College in Arizona. Mm-hmm. And I also did my master's there. I, I worked there for a long time and was a faculty. My uh, master's is in cultural eco-psychology. And oh. then I did my PhD at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco, a.k.a. CIIS, mm. in um, yeah, transformative learning and change. I'm all about uh, worldview transformation, particularly around uh, social justice and ecological issues and looking yeah. at the connections between them. And then, as you mentioned, my um, most recent book that I edited and contributed to, Ecological and Social Healing, Multicultural Women's Voices, mm-hmm. is also really looking at um, this edge awareness that surfaces from people who are quote-unquote marginalized yet have been teaching in the areas of social justice and ecology and may have different perspectives that actually lead to some of the healing solutions we need in this work. Yeah. Wow, very potent. Oh, great. Awesome. So excited to hear your talk today. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, so 
if you would like to. Yes, yes. And uh, for our uh, listeners, I always um, encourage you as I'm speaking to um, notice how you're carrying your body and notice your breath because I'm going to um, drop into some information that may push your buttons a little bit. Mm-hmm. So... Um, as David, as you were saying, the topic is looking at how the oppression of people and the oppression of earth go hand in hand. And uh, so I'm just going to read a frame that I often employ in a lot of my classes. And so when we're addressing issues of racism, I think it's essential to trace the roots of oppression to their um, form, you know, to basic roots. And so in order to adopt an approach that is embedded in both social action and support human rights on the largest, like the largest, widest scale, we have to actually understand the link between social and ecological injustice. And so um, this is where I really focus on the oppression of people of color as inseparable from the oppression of the natural world. Yeah. And um, I think this knowledge, this understanding is starting to come in more into the meme of our society, mm-hmm. but often we're compartmentalizing mentalizing we're teaching about ecological issues and climate change and then we're talking about social justice and human rights or we're talking about diversity and inclusivity without actually connecting it together and so i think it's futile to study either separately if we're actually not looking at the um, biggest picture of oppression And so I've been teaching and learning about environmental issues for the past 18 years. And uh, often I actually find myself in groups and organizations where, believe it or not, there aren't uh, that many uh, people of color. And so I'm often the only person of color. And uh, once in a while I'll get the comment of hearing from someone like, oh, it's so great that you bring your diversity here. And uh, I wish more diverse people would get involved. And to me, this really brings out an assumption of what an environment, an environmentalist looks like and where they work and the groups they're involved with. And, you know, typically uh, people uh, stereotype environmentalists as kind of liberal white people, often middle class to affluent. And that's really not the case. People of color and other diverse groups have always been involved with environmental issues. And since the advent of the ecological crisis, this has been most clearly visible through the environmental justice movement. Um, And in our department, our students take courses in environmental justice. And I'll give just a little breakdown of what that is. It specifically looks at how environmental issues are um, affecting marginalized communities, such as communities of color, both urban and rural indigenous. And it's really saying that uh, people of color, indigenous peoples, women, poor, working class, and children are actually disproportionately affected by environmental issues than mainstream communities because they have less power, both uh, political and economic power, to fight these issues. 
And so um, the environmental justice movement is really critiquing the mainstream environmental movement for not including these issues, uh, often letting like environmental companies and other organizations move into communities of color. There's a classic um, acronym called NIMBY, which is not in my backyard. Mm -hmm. And so like in Boulder, which is a very affluent, pretty... Um, you know, homogenous white community yeah. when um, some sort of environmental um, travesty happens, you know, everyone gets on their bike and we have a rally and um, force the company out of here. And then we often don't realize that it gets situated in another community mm. um, that doesn't have the power of, uh, you know, free time and uh, money and voice and sometimes mm -hmm. to, to fight these issues. Yeah. And so, um, you know, this is a main, one of the main issues in environmental justice, and we can take it to a bigger scale when we're talking about getting social justice in the U.S., and often we equate this with the American dream, like, oh, we want everyone to have the American dream, but if everyone had the American dream, we would just be further taking the resources of people in the global south and yeah. all around <coughs> the world. Yeah. Um, and so we really have to um, recognize this. And so that's one of the reasons where I, I don't think it's appropriate to teach diversity um, courses without really looking at ecological mm. issues because we're not yeah. going to erase oppression just by everyone getting along. Yep. And, uh, yeah, and so it's also important to recognize that environmental justice did not develop after the mainstream environmental movement. Uh, marginalized peoples have always been facing and fighting these issues since the onset of environmental issues. Um, but they've been actually framed as social issues. So colonization, um, think about farm workers, genocide, toxic health, human mm. rights, poor housing, um, so many different things. Uh, the civil rights movement in the 1960s was really instrumental in bringing a voice to these concerns. In fact, before uh, Martin Luther King died, he was working on the rights of uh, sanitation workers, which was an environmental justice issues. And so environmental um, justice, uh, before that it was actually framed as environmental racism, was formalized in the 1980s, and it became more commonly known in the 1990s. So it's great you know, any kind of reputable environmental studies program now has a course in that. But I think it's also important to recognize that it's not a side dish. It's actually the main dish. And mm. um, one of my specific contentions is that you can't take any large-scale pattern of racism. And I'm very U.S.-centric, but yeah. you can't take any large-scale pattern of racism and not see the connection between ecological issues because all of those are always about the acquisition of natural resources. And so um, in the U.S., there's a scholar named Frederick Yeo, and uh, he talks about caste-like minorities. And they're basically people who did not choose to come to the U.S. So we could say, you know, Native Americans, because they were already here. Yep. 
and African Americans because they were forced here, mm-hmm. and then Latino Americans again in general. They were already here, or we you know took their land, mm-hmm. and in some case Asian um, Americans as well. That after enslavement was banned. Often the former slave ships were used to bring Asian populations here to work on pretty free labor. And so when we look at these populations, we can actually see within each group it was about the acquisition of natural resources. With Native Americans, it was about taking land. You know, there's a term terra nullis, or some people pronounce it terra nullius, and it basically means empty, vacant space. And so some of the founding um, philosophies in U.S. culture was about this free land and manifest destiny, really saying that the continent of Turtle Island, um, continent of North America, was basically empty and free of people instead of the millions of Native Americans that were actually here. And so the taking of their land was all about taking a natural resource. And then when you talk about the enslavement of African uh, peoples forced here during the diaspora, it was about working the land and having a free labor source. And then you get into, um, we've had such a very bipolar relationship with Latina populations. Um, You can look at historically, that depending on how much labor, free labor we need um, during a given um, time period, whether we let immigration happen or not. There's so much history in terms of farm workers, World War II, Embracero program, just so many different instances, and similarly with uh, Asian um, American populations. And so racism isn't about, you know, some people not liking certain people. It's actually about acquisition of natural resources. Mm. Wow. Yeah, and in the founding of our country, there was a whole movement of um, indigenous peoples, um, free uh, peoples of color, working class and poor whites that were actually getting together to um, protest and try to overthrow the owning class. And the owning class um, realized that this was actually a problem. If um, all of these peoples got together to try and change things, they actually had the largest percent of the population. Mm -hmm. And so that was in 1690s, the creation of whiteness occurred. And before that, you know, you had so many, you had a lot of enslaved white people through indentured servitude. Mm -hmm. Um, You had, people weren't white, they were Italian or English, Um, they were Irish, they were Scottish, they were Dutch. And then with the creation of whiteness, it gave a whole series of packaged benefits, Mm. privileges to white people, um, which broke down the solidarity. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's really important to look at that. So now I'm going to take just a little bit of pause um, and go back to my uh, starting message of um, everyone just checking in, checking in with their body and their breath. Because, you know, I can even just speaking about this, my shoulders get a little tight, my um, throat gets a little itchy. um, And I know just my own buttons get pushed. Um, It's emotional for everyone. Definitely. Um, and this is one of the, actually the reasons I love teaching at Naropa. 
you know, we're a Buddhist inspired institution. And one of the grounds of that is this idea of basic goodness, um, or the inherent goodness of all living beings. And so when we're talking about racism and the ecological crisis, and if we honor that everyone has basic goodness, we realize that something had to go wrong for the situations to unfold as they have. And so another area that I'm very passionate about and I teach at Naropa is uh, called eco-psychology. And so eco-psychology really looks at the collective madness we find in Western civilization. Um, And really, you can translate that to anyone who's living under a world that's um, within corporate globalization, which unfortunately is pretty much everyone on the planet. Very few people are untouched by corporate domination. Mm -hmm. And so eco-psychology is really looking at this collective illness we have and how that has caused the ecological crisis. Mm. And so there's uh, four basic assumptions. And the first is that the planet is calling for healing. And so, you know, just even in uh, recent weeks with these accelerated um, hurricanes, storms, earthquakes, you know, we're seeing so many things with climate change. We're seeing... um, major forest fires out of control, Um, you know, Mumbai, um, Niger, just so many places all around the world where people are suffering, the planet is suffering. And then the second one is assumption of eco-psychology is that the state of um, the human psyche is calling for healing, both collectively and individually. Um, We see such high rates of people with anxiety and depression, people um, suffering from addictions, whether it's drugs or alcohol, uh, television, technology, codependent relationships. My favorite, you know, consumerism is a huge one. And so uh, we see this kind of individual and collective madness. And then the third is that these two things aren't separate. Psyche and earth are interdependent. Mm -hmm. And so the fourth is what I um, framed earlier is that this pathology, this illness is embedded in the history and culture of uh, history of Western culture or um, AKA also globalized culture. Yeah. Yeah. And so for me, this is really powerful Mm -hmm. because if you um, essentially recognize that we're all traumatized, that we're all ill, when you have a loved one that's ill, you're not um, mean and abusive to them. You treat with them with compassion. And so even yeah. as we're not agreeing with people, as we're seeing this collective abuse of the planet and one another, um, if we recognize that we're all under a illness, then we actually start to treat one another with a certain level of compassion. And uh, yeah, I think that's, the gist of what I wanted to um, speak about. My one of my favorite books to have students read, both at the undergraduate level and the graduate level, and it's actually my favorite book to read on a plane because <laughs> people sitting next to me are like, "Huh, interesting." Is uh, my name is Chellis, and I'm in recovery from Western civilization um, <laughs> by an amazing author named Chellis Glennoning, mm-hmm. and she straddles um, kind of psychology and eco-psychology and uh, she has two really interesting concepts one is called the primal matrix 
And this is um, before we um, experience this separation from the natural world, what was our actual inherent nature? And she says it's the primal matrix. Mm -hmm. And this has three dimensions. And the first is a sense of belonging and security in the world. Mm -hmm. And so just really it's like feeling at home. Yeah. Um, so many of us don't feel at home, even at home. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's always something mm. wrong. A lot of us are f afraid of nature. Um, you know, whether it's just like small, you know, spiders or dirt or the <laughs> forest or getting into water. Yeah. Um, you know, I know people who are don't like to drink water. I'm like, what? That's crazy. How, how does that work? Right? I know. <laughs> I know. Like, I'm, wow. We're just going to drink some soda pop or juice. And you're like, no, don't do that. <laughs> and then the second dimension is, uh, I like to translate it into having your a unique calling in life. Um, she says it's a sense of personal integrity, centeredness, capability, consciousness of I. And so in our society, we're often educated and conditioned to get a job that's going to make the most money and it's work, but it's not necessarily a calling. Mm -hmm. um, yet, you know, many spiritual traditions believe that we're born into this earth with a unique gift to offer to earth. Yes. And also in re reciprocity, we also receive a special gift as well. Mm -hmm. um, yet our conditioning often separates us from this type of path. Mm. Um, and I feel like a Naropa education is um, helping us to get back onto this path. Yeah. And then the final um, quality that she talks about in this primal matrix is non-ordinary states of awareness. Mm. And uh, this is just huge. Um, this is really our birthright. And in a lot of ways, it's the experience of magic, the numinous. Um, it doesn't, you don't need to get there by, you know, taking ayahuasca or drugs, um, meditation, dancing, um, singing, mm. creating art, spending yeah. time in nature, being in ceremony. Yeah. There's so many ways to be in this, but a lot of the day-to-day -day habits that we have in our culture don't um, encourage this. And so many of us have grown out, up with um, not experiencing them because we haven't had those rites of passage. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is huge. Yeah, and so there's so many um, dimensions around this. Uh, she talks about the other concepts, this original trauma, and this is you know what broke our intact relationship with nature. And again, if we go back to eco-psychology, which says it's the history of Western culture, this really um, comes through a whole movement of different things, such as the establishment of mechanistic science, which instead of seeing the universe and earth as a series of relationships, broke it into a series of parts of dead matter. Many claim that organized religion separated this separation because instead of having first-hand experiences of what is sacred, uh, we suddenly shifted to getting that from a book or a person, a pulpit, doctrine rather than our own intuition and relationship and ex embodied experience. Um, for um, European folks, the witch burnings were huge. It really broke, you know, 
people call this the female genocide, but it was both men and women and, um, you know, pagans, which are actually small town farmers. It was their separation from earth and that persecution. I see colonization as a major force in that um, and so many different um, formats. And um, yeah, so, you know, my just my takeaway here, which was the title, is um, <laughs> the oppression of people and the oppression of earth go hand in hand. And racism mm. has not been an arbitrary act. It's been used mm -hmm. to separate people from land um, and to force people into classes that work the land for low or no compensation. Mm. And wow. uh, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's some pretty big, heavy stuff right there. Mm. I've actually never seen it in that light until right now. And wow. I'm seeing it extremely clear of how you know, an entity comes in and wants a material, wants a resource. That's kind of like their goal, essentially. And then they use the people that are there to yeah. get it for them. Definitely. You know, and it's yeah. some, some heavy stuff. Heavy stuff. Wow. But, I mean, your your message is powerful. You have, like, such good energy. You have, like, a powerful person behind the message. Mm. And, like, shedding your wisdom and knowledge is 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 so good to hear, and especially on matters that need attention. So oh. we appreciate you sharing your, um, your topic with us today. And I kind of wanted to ask you a question or two. Sure. Yeah. So with all that, like, what are some of the things we can do as, like, a community, a society to both help our environment and also our social interactions with people who might be marginalized, people of color, diversity, keeping it all inclusive. Like what are some things that we could do right now or maybe a little bit of planning to help this? Yeah, and uh, that's one thing that I love about this work is there's infinite things that we can do. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things um, which connects so much to the work that we're doing here at Naropa is really starting with our sense of self. Um, and so no longer staying in this kind of ego-bound, narcissistic self, mm -hmm. but um, extending our sense of self so we embody a more compassionate self. And so in eco-psychology and deep ecology, we have this concept called the ecological self. And so when we spend time in nature, we suddenly, you know, maybe you're out on a park bench and you're talking to a squirrel or there's this, <laughs> you know, creek that yeah. you walk by every day and you, um, you know, see the same ducks or, you know, this fox or this tree you love. All of a sudden, your sense of identity extends to this other being. And you can actually start doing that with lots of different beings um, and knowing your place. Yeah. And then same thing with other um, peoples. There's this idea of this multicultural self. And that actually when we spend time with diverse peoples, we actually stop inhabiting our own frame we realize, wow, you know, there's things to learn here. When I know someone's story that of someone who's different, suddenly, you know, there's like love, you know. Yeah. Um, I love that person. And who I thought I was before has now ex extended to include some of that person's story. Mm -hmm. And so when we can actually do these things, we can actually shift our identities and our level of compassion in the way we uh, start our work in the world. Yeah. 
Yeah, we shouldn't be afraid of differentness.、Mm-hmm. We should almost celebrate it more、yeah. to make us more whole. You know, fill out, fill out our puzzle piece、right. of our characteristics. You know, let's collect them all. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> you know, definitely. just show everyone some love and let's do this. Yeah. And I think, yeah, it definitely starts with with the human interactions, the the natural interactions. And just the interactions with ourselves too, you know. And I think that's a that's a great place to start. But whew, that's a lot of work too. Yeah, you know? but but good work. Yeah, yeah. Got to start somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> so here's another one.、Um, how how can we use this thing that we're labeling mindfulness?、Mm. How can we use mindfulness in sort of these pursuits?、Mm. Is there anything that you like to do to be mindful? When you're stepping into a classroom, yeah.、Um, when you're stepping into、uh, conversations with other colleagues,、mm-hmm. um, or just stepping into the work that you do, is there is there like mindful practices that you use? Yeah, I do so many. Just、um, I have to do a lot of just practices every day to、yeah. be able to show up、um, mm. in the work that I do and the work that we're doing collectively. So, just on a you know. Every day, I pretty much go to a yoga class. I've got a dog, so I get out in nature. I live in the foothills in、uh, Boulder, so I get into the woods a lot. I meditate every day.、Nice. Um, I'm all about eating healthy. I've got、yeah. a garden, and then you know when I step into a class, I try to、um, first like unpack some of the assumptions I have. You know, am I you know. Check in on what I'm feeling today. Am I in a kind of cranky mood? Am I a little tired? Am I like over exuberant? And remember that even if there's folks that might push my buttons, we're all about learning together. And so, kind of showing up in a way that my heart is in it, and also knowing that I don't actually have to. Hold the room. I'm、um, while I'm teaching. I'm also learning and showing up authentic.、Um, so yeah, I think just really stepping in in that way. Wow! Thank you so much. Thank you, David. Awesome. So that was Janine Canty of Naropa University, a full-time professor and the chair of the Environmental Studies Department. And、uh, we just like to thank you for coming out today and speaking with us. My honor. Thank you. On behalf of the Naropa community, thank you for listening to Mindful You, the official podcast of Naropa University. Check us out at www.naropa.edu or follow us on social media for more updates.